And so as I was saying last week, I gave an overview of where these teachings come from, the Noble Eightfold Path being the last of the four noble truths. And I highlighted that the path is really the prescription that the Buddha gave us to metaphorically cure us of dukkha. So if you remember last week, I described how he used a, an existing model of healing that was in use in India at that time, the four-stage model of um, recognizing that there's an illness or a disease of some kind, identifying what the cause of that is, working out how to cure it, and then lastly offering a prescription, um, a course of treatment. So the Noble Eightfold Path is this course of treatment for our existential dukkha. It's what helps us release suffering so that we can live with greater ease and happiness and peace and freedom. And this path that the Buddha laid out is very comprehensive. It really includes all aspects of our lives. As some of you are pointing to, if we really engage with this, there's nothing left out. And it's also a gradual training, a progressive training. And this progression is not necessarily linear, though. It's not like we start with right view. Okay, I work on that for a week. Tick. Now I go on to right thought. Yep, got that. Tick. Move on to right speech and so on in this very um, linear way. As many of you were describing last week, as we explore any of these path factors, we start to see how they're all interrelated and they bring each other in with them. And so one uh, model or overview of these eight path factors is to see them in three particular arenas of our lives, in Pali, Sila, Samadhi and Panya. So there are aspects that work on our ethical conduct how we show up in the world, how we relate to each other, how we manifest and engage with our lives. These are all aspects of sila or ethical conduct. And then samadhi are the aspects that refer to meditation or mental cultivation. And then the last lot, panya. Panya means wisdom. These are the ones that very directly cultivate our understanding, our wisdom. And I put dana in brackets at the top because that was usually the first stage that the Buddha offered when he was meeting with people who were new to the whole path. He introduced them to dana, to generosity, and got them to understand the benefits of opening the heart and sharing. And when he felt that they'd understood that, he moved on to ethical conduct, which is also an aspect of generosity one way that ethical conduct is framed is as the gift of non-harming. And then when they'd understood the value of ethics, he moved on to the trainings in meditation and wisdom. So there's a deepening of the path. And as you might have noticed, the path factors of right view and right thought, which are the first two in the Noble Eightfold Path, are the wisdom ones that are the last in this grouping in terms of three. 
This is pointing to the circularity of the path, because unless we had some degree of wisdom to begin with, we wouldn't be here in this room today unless we had some inkling that there's a different way to live our lives or something that we could learn, different way of seeing, we wouldn't start on the path in the first place. So we need some provisional amount of wisdom to get us launched. And then as many of you are pointing to, that gets ripened and deepened. So wisdom is both the start of the path and as it progresses, it's the culmination into the ultimate wisdom of Nibbana. And we can hear this word wisdom, and you know, in English it sounds a little bit old-fashioned. It might sound a little bit remote or lofty or abstract, you know, something that happens for people who spend 10 years in a cave in the Himalaya. But mm, I, wouldn't, I don't really think of myself as, as wise. But one of the aspects of the Buddha's teachings that I really appreciate is that wisdom is something we can cultivate. It's not something we're either born with that we have or we don't. It's something that we can develop. And uh, investigating, exploring, and living the Noble Eightfold Path actually is what helps us develop this wisdom. So this word panya, etymologically, nya means to know, and pa means correctly. So wisdom as knowing correctly, for me at least, that sounds a little bit more accessible. And again, it's something that we can practice, that we can train in. So the English monk Ajahn Sumedho, he translates wisdom as discerning because it's a verb. It's something that we actually do rather than a static noun as it sounds in English. So this wisdom is a practice, it's a training, it's a gradual development. And in the teachings, it's pointed to as deepening in three somewhat distinct stages. So the first stage of uh, wisdom is known as borrowed understanding. And it's that intellectual knowledge that comes from reading Dharma books, from listening to talks, uh, it's mostly an intellectual understanding that comes from outside. And for many of us, or at least for me, before I started practicing, I thought wisdom was just this intellectual understanding. It's just about getting a bunch of facts, maybe being, being able to discuss things on an intellectual level, and that's it. And it was actually quite a long time. I, in fact, I remember sitting in a Dharma talk at IMS and going, oh... These are not just nice ideas. These are things I'm actually supposed to do. And, you know, I'd been realized I'd been sitting there as if I was in a university lecture or in a school classroom going, oh, yep, sounds good. Yep, yep, yep. But there wasn't really an engagement or a, a deeper exploration of it. So I think many of us in Western mainstream culture, we have this idea that wisdom is just some kind of intellectual um, capacity. So it can stay in the head. But in the Buddha's teachings, to bring it down to the next level of depth, we really need to engage with it in our lives, to take these teachings on and to explore them, 
as you have been doing, what happens when I actually tune into dukkha, for example, and I feel it in my body and I recognize the thought patterns and I see the ways I'm clinging and holding? That's an example of taking the wisdom down to the next level, which I think is being the heart because it's starting to become more embodied. It's no longer just a head-based understanding This is the wisdom acquired through contemplation, through taking in and thinking about and exploring in our own lives. And then lastly, as we do this more and more and as we deepen our meditation practice and we start to get more of those very deep, intuitive, transformative insights, this wisdom becomes even more embodied. And I think of it as being in the gut at this point. So in English, we talk about knowing something in our guts. And for me, that's when the wisdom has become so digested metaphorically that it's embodied in us. We don't have to think anymore. It's just how we are, who we are, how we show up in the world. So there's this progression from head to heart to gut metaphorically as the wisdom ripens and deepens. So maybe just to give a a really basic example of how that might work uh, in my life and how you may have seen similar things in your own lives. Early on in my practice, when I heard about the five training precepts and the one about not killing living beings, I thought, well, yeah, it's a nice idea, but it's not very practical, really. I mean, ants and flies and spiders, you know, come on, that's a little bit. And then as I kept exploring I thought yeah I started to understand intellectually yeah this this is actually a useful training to see what are my biases which living beings do I think are somehow less than or I used to think of them as inconvenient forms of life and then I started to see wow you know the arrogance of that and then I came on retreat here and In the mornings when it's cool and misty, the path gets full of snails. And the first time I was going up to breakfast, I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to have, this is going to take me forever to get up there if I don't stand on snails. And there was this little pulse of a bit annoyed. But as I spent more time during the retreat and my practice deepened and my mindfulness got sharper, I started to really appreciate this challenge of these Beings are helping me practice mindful walking and there started to be a real affection for them. And so when I accidentally stood on one, wow, it was actually painful. I felt so bad for a little while. And then later I was practicing in Thailand and after the retreat, we stayed in some, a group of us went to stay in some bungalows and we would get together every morning to eat our breakfast. And there was a man there who hadn't been on the retreat, but he would join in the group and have these nice conversations. And one morning he told me that the night before there'd been this huge caterpillar on the roof of his hut. And he was describing how it was all these incredible colors and it had really long fur and these big eyes that were iridescent and the way it moved. And I was getting really fascinated as he was describing this caterpillar. And I said, wow, what did you do? And he said, well, I got out my Swiss army knife and chopped its head off. (laughs) And that was my response. It was so unexpected that 
I realized that never would have occurred to me at that point. Whereas, you know, five years earlier, maybe that would have been my response too. But it wasn't like I sat there and thought, hmm, that was the first precept. Maybe that wouldn't have been a good idea. It was just this instinctive, no, that that for me would not have been an appropriate response. So that's just a, a really basic example of how something that starts as an intellectual idea over time and with contemplation and meditation practice becomes more our orientation in the world. And you probably have similar examples in your own practice history if you think back over time. So right view, the one that we were exploring last week, is this um, understanding that actions have consequences. That's one aspect of it. And again, just to come back to this phrase, right view, the challenges in English is that we hear right view and it can sound sort of authoritarian. Think this way or else. You know. So I just want to reiterate Gil Fronstel's perspective that um, the word appropriate might be more appropriate in here rather than the English word right because as soon as we hear right it's right and wrong good and bad black and white we fall into all these binary ways of thinking so this is what Gill says in relation to right view he says right view is not meant to be the only perspective from which to view our life other perspectives can be necessary for other purposes however in order to walk the Buddha's path to freedom Right view is an essential ingredient. It is the perspective needed to find the path and to stay on the path. Practicing right view does not require believing something that we can't know for ourselves. It does not rely on any supernatural or mystical beliefs, nor does it require us to be ahead of where we are. Pursuing a path involves walking where we are on the path. We can't walk on what lies ahead until we reach it. So again, there's this sense of the progressive path and right view is what helps us to get started and to keep us moving in the right direction. So the American scholar monk Bhikkhu Bodhi also has written an excellent series of essays on the Noble Eightfold Path that some of you might be familiar with. And he also describes the enormous emphasis that the Buddha put, put on this first path factor. He says, the Buddha himself says that he sees no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrong view, and no factor so helpful for the arising of wholesome states of mind as right view. Again, he says that there is no single factor so responsible for the suffering of living beings as wrong view, and no factor so potent in promoting the good of living beings as right view. So there's a very strong connection between right view, skillful states of mind, and skillful actions. And so you might sense how right view leads very naturally into the second path factor, which is right thought, sometimes translated as right intention. 
And again, just to name that in English, right thought, if we just read the phrase right thought, it can sound pretty oppressive or even Orwellian. If some of you remember the George Orwell's book, 1984, and the thought police, you know, we read about right thought and there can be this background sense of, you know, you better think the right way or else. And in some religious traditions, that actually is a real thing. There are beliefs that you have to take on. But this is not the case here. The right thought that the Buddha was referring to really comes out of his own practice experience. There's a sutta that I'd like to read you. Again, it's quite complex language, but I think hearing the actual words from the texts it just brings in more nuances than, than my paraphrasing does. So this is what uh, the Buddha is reported to have said. Practitioners, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I understood thus, this thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbāna. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction. It subsided in me. When I considered, this leads to the affliction of both. It subsided in me. When I considered, this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbāna, it subsided in me. And he goes on in the same way to talk about thoughts of ill will and thoughts of cruelty. So I find this a very powerful statement and one that we can really take to heart in our own practice that if we pay close attention to our thoughts it becomes clear that thoughts of sense desire or greed for sense pleasures are actually quite harmful not only to ourselves but to whoever gets in the way of us getting that sense pleasure and obviously ill will or aversion most of us can feel the pain of that, the suffering of that. And clearly, cruelty leads to harm for others and for ourselves. And what I find fascinating is that on one level, this is totally obvious. I think we all agree that it's not helpful to um, cultivate states of um, greed, aversion, and cruelty and yet, speaking for myself, at times we find ourselves acting in ways that are not helpful to ourselves or others. 
And the Buddha became clear about this too. He understood, well, how does that actually happen? So even with things like, we can think of the example of New Year's resolutions, you know, we have this idea that we're going to not do certain things or we are going to do certain things. And not too many people manage to make those resolutions stick. It's challenging. So we find ourselves very quickly falling into the same old, same old. And in that same sutta that I just referenced, the Buddha went on to say, practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, one has abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate the thought of sensual desire. And then one's mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, upon thoughts of cruelty, one has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty to cultivate the thought of cruelty. And then one's mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. So what he's pointing to here is what modern neuroscientists have, are only just starting to catch up with, this concept of neuroplasticity, that we actually have the power to shape our minds by our thought processes. So the aphorism that neurons that fire together wire together, that we're constantly creating these pathways in the mind and we need to be clear what pathways we're creating because they were strengthening certain patterns and conversely helping others to release. So I read a few years ago that they did autopsies of people who had severe obsessional compulsive disorder and they could see grooves, ridges in the brain from this compulsive repeating of certain patterns. Now that's one extreme but still we're doing similar things by these um, unconscious falling into these uh, cow paths in the mind. But the good news is that we can start to weaken those pathways and to strengthen new neural pathways by, as the Buddha suggests, cultivating the antidotes to these unskillful states. So he identified... Uh, desire for sense pleasure, ill will, and cruelty as three things that are very harmful that we need to reduce our thinking in relation to. And we can do that by strengthening the opposites. And this is what's referred to as right thought. It's the intention to incline the mind to renunciation, the intention to non-ill will, in other words, goodwill or metta. Many of you know metta as a formal meditation practice. And the last one, to incline away from cruelty towards non-cruelty, non-harming or compassion. So right thought refers very specifically to these three intentions. And sometimes, as you see, right thought is translated as right intention because that's the word the Buddha uses. But again, in English, the word intention can sound, in some circumstances, a little bit wishy-washy. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, I didn't intend to hurt you. It wasn't my intention to cause you harm. 
And there can be a bit of a disconnect there and a sort of an implication. It's your fault for being so sensitive. So intention can be used in these unskillful ways. And we also have the saying in English, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. For this reason, there's another translation of right thought that I appreciate as right resolve. Right resolve has that implication of, I need to be pretty strong here. I need to make the resolve to have the resolution, the determination to incline my heart mind in this direction of renunciation, of goodwill, and of compassion. So just a little bit about what these three are. Renunciation. How does that land in English? Very Catholic. Yes, very Catholic. You want another word. So yes, for many of us, I mean, in English, this word dictionary definition, relinquishing, abandoning, repudiating, abstention from, doing without, giving up, eschewal of, rejection of, abandonment, resignation, etc., etc. So we have to work very hard with this word renunciation to try and release all of those uh, unhelpful connotations in English. I think it's a really soft word. You find it a soft, soft word. word. Okay. So that's great. You don't have to work. You can just go with it. So for some people, relinquishment is an easier word. But I just want to make the point that in when I was exploring renunciation a few years ago, almost everywhere that the Buddha refers to renunciation, he refers to it as the bliss of renunciation and yet in English bliss and renunciation can sound like an oxymoron so what is it that he's pointing to and Joseph Goldstein uh, refers to renunciation as non-addiction and you might get a sense from that of it's that releasing from the compulsion the craving, the greed the gotta have it kind of energy that's what renunciation is referring to. It's not the kind of self-punishment or deprivation. It's actually the invitation to free ourselves from compulsive, habitual wanting. So again, just a really... Is, you know, coffee, as, as many of you know, there's this new cafe up the road that actually has good coffee and... I've been going there sometimes on my day off and appreciating the coffee and then next morning thinking, oh, maybe I'll just start the day with a nice coffee up there. And I feel that pull. And I also know because of right view that if I go there the next day, I probably want to go there the next day and the next day and the next day. And then it becomes every morning I can't start the day until I've had my coffee Okay, on one level, that's maybe a, a relatively harmless thing. But why feed that wanting when it's easy enough just to say, let me keep it for my days off, and then I really will appreciate it more than if it just becomes a default habit rather than something I'm doing consciously um, with awareness. So this is a very simple example of this um, movement towards renunciation. 
there's a lot more we could say, but I want to just touch in a little bit to the other two of non-ill will, of goodwill or metta. And I think most of you are familiar with um, the Pali word metta, which literally means goodwill or benevolence. And so we're offered these um, a set of mindfulness of meditation trainings known as the Brahma-Vihara, which include goodwill or metta, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Those are four sets of particular meditation practices that aim to cultivate these skillful states of heart and mind. So for myself, uh, in my own experience, working with these Brahma-Vihara practices on a regular basis has... I think of them as a kind of soft armor because they make me uh, more resilient, less impacted by the inevitable irritations and challenges of other people. So this week I'll be encouraging you, if you don't already, to start incorporating some formal metta or kindness into your regular, your daily sitting practice. And I'll offer you... um, an introductory talk and a guided meditation for those of you who aren't familiar with it. So the last one, the non-cruelty, is um, also is related to compassion, which is also a Brahma-Vihara practice. And compassion is that capacity to turn towards what's difficult, to turn towards pain and distress, and to meet it with kindness and with the wish for the suffering to be alleviated. So it's a direct antidote to the intention of cruelty. And for many of us, though, this turning towards suffering is uh, not something that comes naturally. You know, our usual instinct when something is painful is, ah, get it away from me, make it stop, make it go away. How can I avoid, ignore it, escape from it? So most of us need some training to actually turn towards the pain and meet it with kindness. And as many of you know, this is woven very foundationally into the teachings. They are sometimes framed in terms of these two wings of awakening, this metaphor of wisdom and compassion being the two wings that need to be equally well-developed if we're going to metaphorically fly so the compassion aspect of the practice supports it from not being done just for our own individual benefit. And that's a, a very important point because sometimes people think all of this turning inwards and looking at our own lives and you know, sometimes there's a popular misperception that meditation is some kind of narcissistic navel-gazing. But when we really engage with the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, many of them are very explicitly about how we are in the world and how we relate. So I'd like to just finish with a quote again from Gil Fransdell that expresses this very clearly. He says, We don't just walk the Eightfold Path for ourselves. Sometimes people assume that in bringing attention to our suffering, The Eightfold Path leads only to self-concern. But the renunciation, goodwill and compassion of right intention establish the path of practice 
within the context of our interpersonal relationships. A concern for the welfare of others is integral to walking the Eightfold Path. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.